Well, if you've been with us uh, for the past month or two, you know that we have been working our way through the Gospel of Luke. Last Sunday, we took a look at Jesus' baptism. Jesus was baptized, and as we saw, uh, that was uh, the kind of kicking off point of his public ministry. Uh, Next week, we will see that his first act is confronting Satan in the wilderness. We saw at his baptism uh, the Holy Spirit descend in bodily form like a dove and rest upon him and a voice from heaven call out, uh, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. So we saw the, the triune God there at the baptism of Christ. Today's text is sandwiched in between Jesus' baptism and the the start of his ministry and next week where he will confront Satan. It is Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. And if you have your Bibles with you, uh, as always, I'd encourage you to open them and keep them open. And uh, if if you don't have a Bible with you but would like to use one, uh, you can find a Bible in the row in front of you. And if you're going to use that, Bible, you'll find the text on page 859. Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simein, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kasim, the son of Almadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashan, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, 
the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mathalalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, I know what many of you are probably thinking. Maybe not all of you. If you've been here long enough, you might not be thinking this, but a lot of you are probably thinking, is he really going to preach from that? (laughs) Now, if you've been here long enough, you know that we preach sequentially through books of the Bible, so you're probably not that surprised that whatever the next text is, we preach from. So, yes, I am going to kind of preach from this today. Now, I'm going to tell you straight up that uh, it's not going to be like a typical sermon where we go verse by verse. There's not a whole lot uh, in these verses to preach from, Uh, but we are going to look at this genealogy today because I think we tend to skip over the genealogies. Those of you who have read through the Bible in the past, uh, when you reach long lists of genealogies, uh, if you're like me, you probably don't read every single name and pause at every name like we did this morning. But genealogies are significant. They're found all throughout the Bible. And, uh, and so since God doesn't waste space in his word, uh, we will be looking at this one this morning. And hopefully we will come away with some encouragement. Now one of the things that uh, I want to do uh, as we even begin thinking about a genealogy is to once again remind ourselves that this genealogy points to a fact that I've mentioned a number of times already in the Gospel of Luke, which is that the Bible is history. The Bible is history. It is a book of human history. It's, I think, the book of human history uh, in the history of the world. The Bible is not primarily a book of fables or stories or legends. Uh, We do have some made-up stories in the Bible. Uh, Jesus will teach from what are called parables. We know those are made up, though. Uh, We can tell by how they're taught and what is said in those. But the Bible is a book of ancient history. It goes all the way back to the most ancient history, to, in fact, the first humans on planet Earth. And Luke, as I have pointed out a number of times, is a historian. If he's anything, and he was a doctor as well, but he's a historian. He began this gospel right off the bat saying that he has researched this. He's looked into this. He's interviewed people. He's looked at documents, and he's put together a well-researched document, what we call his gospel, so that we may have certainty of what he is talking about. And so far, Luke has presented it as history. Right from the get-go, Jesus is as much a historical figure as Caesar Augustus is. 
He's as much a historical figure as Herod the Great or Pontius Pilate. That being said, the Bible is not simply a history book. It is a book of redemptive history. All history books are selective. I was a history major, and uh, that was one of the things that that uh, was taught early on, History 101. All, all history books are selective. Every historian has a point he's trying to get across, and therefore, even though he's being, doing his due diligence and, and doing the research and presenting the history, he wants to make an argument about this person that he's talking about. And so he selects his history, not to be uh, deceptive at all, but just to show the point that he's trying to make. The Bible is selective. It only has so many pages, as you can see. It's not exhaustive. It's not infinite in its number of pages. On top of that, the Bible is an ancient history, uh, historical text. It, obviously, we have it in modern Bibles today, but when it was first written, it was rich, written with ancient materials on, on ancient materials and was thus very expensive and costly to make. So the words are not wasted in Scripture. The Bible does not do an exhaustive history of every nation on earth. It is a selective history, but a very detailed history about the family through whom God brings redemption. That's why it's redemptive history. Now, according to the Bible's history, as I mentioned before, earlier the sermon, uh, the service before the confession of sin, uh, the Bible says that the world was, uh, is not the way it should be. The world that we live in now is not the world that God originally created. And I think, really, that most of us acknowledge that. Obviously, Christians ought to acknowledge that. It's what the Bible teaches. But, but in my life, I've never encountered anyone, be they Christian or non, who has ever said that they believe this world is perfect. Everyone acknowledges that, that whatever good there is in their life, there are bad things as well. That whatever good things might happen, that by and large, there are a lot of bad things that happen in this world. Everyone that I've ever talked to longs for something better longs for something different. The Bible explains why. The Bible has a reason for that. The Bible doesn't say that what is, is. And it's always been this way and it always will be this way. According to Scripture's history, humanity has fallen into sin and needs to be redeemed. It needs to be saved. And that's exactly what God promises. It's exactly what He promised a long time ago. What's neat about the Bible is that it wasn't written in one room by one guy who writes history as he knows it or as he imagines it to be. The Bible was written by many authors over many years. And so when we go back to the earliest history written in Scripture, what we find is that when humanity fell into sin and God brought curses upon this world, we find that in the midst of all of the curses 
early on, God gave hope. God brought a word, one sentence of hope. He said to the serpent or to Satan in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Adam and Eve have fallen into sin. God is bringing down curses on Satan, the one who attempted them. And in that sentence, he gives the world the first gospel. He gives the world the first ray of hope, the first statement of good news in the midst of all of the bad. Now Eve, as I guess was to be expected, thought I think, if you, read, if you read her language here, that she thought her first son was the one. And, and why wouldn't she, right? The, I mean, who, who knew at that point that thousands and thousands of years of human history was going to elapse? Uh, Eve gives birth to her first son, and what does she say? I have gotten a man with the help from the Lord. Again, I, I'm assuming she thought it was the Satan killer, this was the one that would come from the seed of the woman, only to have Cain turn out to be the first murderer. And that's how the Old Testament progresses. As population increases, so does wickedness on earth, until you reach Genesis 6, and it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And it could have ended there. Every creature that God created could have been wiped out right then, except that God had already given his promise. The reason God didn't wipe everyone out is because after the fall, he had already promised the gospel to Eve. And so in the midst of all of the wickedness, in the midst of all of humanity's, the intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6, 8 says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In the midst of all of sinful humanity, one man was given grace by God, and that's Noah and his family. And so what we see is that all of humanity was almost blotted out, that God's promise was down to one man and one family spared by the grace of God in order to keep the race going, in order to keep the promise made to Eve going. And what we see is in Scripture, in history, from the beginning of recorded history, a kind of genealogy is kept by God. From Adam, through Noah, through Noah's children, and eventually we come to Genesis 12, where an obscure man, a pagan named Abram, living in the land of Ur, is selected by God. And when God meets Abram, he says, I will make of you, Abram, a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. And then he says this, I will bless those who bless you 
And him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Suddenly, we get another piece of the puzzle added to the gospel. It's not only that some man, some descendant from Eve is going to crush the head of the serpent, but that somehow in this man, Abram, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And so the question then is asked, well, is Abram the Satan crusher? Is he the one that everyone was waiting for? Was he the Messiah that God had promised to send? Well, he wasn't. Genesis 17, God says to Abram, no longer will your name be called Abram, but your name will be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. I will establish my covenant with Sarah's son, Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant. So now we find that it's going to be through Abraham's son, Isaac, that all the families of the earth will be blessed. It will be through Abraham's son, Isaac, that all of the families of the earth will be blessed in an everlasting covenant. Forever the earth will be blessed. And then you say, well, well then is Isaac the serpent killer? No, because then in Genesis 26, the Lord appeared to Isaac, and he said, look, I'm going to multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, okay well, now we're on to Isaac's offspring. Who, who will it be? Well, then Jacob comes along, and Isaac says to Jacob, May God give you the dew of heaven. Let peoples serve you. Nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. And now we find that it is Jacob who will be somehow king. That all the nations of the, of the earth are going to bow down to Jacob. And you say, well, well, then it's got to be Jacob. Jacob has to be the serpent killer. After all, he had his name changed to Israel. He had striven with God. Except that wasn't the case. Jacob, now called Israel, speaking to his 12 sons just before he is about to die, looks at his fourth son, Judah. And he says, Judah, your brothers are going to praise you. Your father's sons are going to bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The ruler's staff is not going to depart from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. There is this everlasting covenant, the one in which the whole world is going to be blessed, that will include a king who would come through Judah. But it's not Judah. Judah dies. And then another piece of the puzzle is added. Because finally, God chooses a king. 
Not the one the nation of Israel chose, Saul, who was a massive failure. God chose a man after his own heart, the King David. And you might say, well, David surely is the serpent killer. David is the one we've been waiting for. He, he's the one that comes from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. And he's the one who, as a boy, stood against Goliath, the most powerful man who's ever lived, the one who everyone else feared, including Saul. It's got to be David. Only it wasn't. 2 Samuel 7, God says to King David, when your days are fulfilled... And you lie down with your fathers, David, after you die. I'm going to raise up your offspring after you. He's going to come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. So it wasn't David. Now we know. We know from redemptive history, through thousands of years of recorded history, we know that this serpent crusher, this Messiah, would come through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David. And by the time Jesus came upon the scene, as I mentioned last week, Messianic expectations were high. Everyone was waiting for this future son of David. Who would it be? Everyone knew that the Messiah had to come through these lines or else he couldn't be the Messiah. That's exactly what Scripture said. So now we have this book, Luke, in the New Testament. And Luke is going to tell us along with Matthew, Mark, and John, that this one man named Jesus of Nazareth, a man that none of us ever met personally, who lived long ago, 2,000 years ago, during the time of Caesar Augustus and Caesar Tiberius, during the time of the Roman occupation of Israel, during the time when Rome was ruling the world, during the time of crucifixion, and Roman legions, that this man from an obscure area of Nazareth, of around the Sea of Galilee, is the serpent crusher. That this man is the Messiah, the one that the whole Old Testament points to. He, in fact, is going to call himself the Messiah. But is he? Well, one of the first things that needs to be established, if he is to be the Messiah, is does he have the genealogical credentials? He would have to. And this is where the genealogies come into play. And this is why they are so important. Now, there are genealogies throughout the, the entire Bible. But for Jesus, there are two in the New Testament. There's one in Matthew and there's one in Luke. Now, Matthew's genealogy is the more classic of the two. Matthew's genealogy comes at the start of his gospel. It's funny, when I was uh, a boy, a teenager, I tried my hand a number of times at reading straight through the Bible. And I always began in the Old Testament. And I, I would get 
as far as Leviticus, and then, and then I would fail. And that would be the end of it. And then I tried my hand again, and then that time I got about as far as numbers, and then I failed. And then my last attempt, I tried and got as far as First Chronicles. I thought I was doing really well, and then First Chronicles opens with nine chapters of genealogies. I failed. I pretty much at that point gave up on reading straight through the Bible. I was going to a a Bible preaching, a healthy PCA church. I grew up going there. I heard scripture preached every Sunday, redemptive historically, talking about how Jesus fulfills the Bible. And to me, that was, I thought, hey, I'm doing well. I'm I'm getting the Bible every Sunday. Maybe I don't need to read uh, the whole Bible. And then I was challenged in my early 20s to again read through the Bible. I'm happy to say I completed that one. But I decided to start with the New Testament. I said, I, I've, I've been stymied thus far, starting with the old. I'm going to start with the new and then work my way back around through the old. By that time, I'll be nice and warmed up, and I'll already have a ton under my belt, and I'll just keep going with the momentum. And I opened up the New Testament, and what do I run into? A list of names. I thought it was going to be better. <laughs> and Matthew opens with a genealogy. Now, there are many reasons why uh, we can, you know, if we were preaching through Matthew, in fact we did, so you could always go back and listen to those sermons, but Matthew, uh, there's a, a reason uh, that, that he, I think, begins with a genealogy. Not only does, is that the way it normally was done, but although our Bibles have First and Second Chronicles somewhere kind of in the middle of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible has First and Second Chronicles at the end. And so I think that what Matthew is doing is essentially picking up where Chronicles left off. He's saying, look, it doesn't end there. It continues with this man, Jesus. And so he begins with a genealogy. Now, Matthew's genealogy also runs, more classically, from the past to the present. Again, all you need to do is read through the genealogies, and you'll find that that that's how they run, from past to present. They move forward in time. Now, what is it that Matthew is trying to persuade the reader about Jesus? Well, if you are able uh, to do so, I'd encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Turn to that genealogy. If you're not used to using a Bible, you just turn back a little bit from where you are in Luke and you'll find Matthew. Matthew says it right from the beginning. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is trying to persuade the reader that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, or the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And if you start reading through this genealogy, you'll see that is, that's exactly what his genealogical credentials show. He starts with Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And then he goes on until the end of that first paragraph, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And he follows that through until you get to the end. And over and over and over again, you see that somebody fathered somebody else. 
Somebody fathered somebody else until, and it runs that way all the way until you get to verses 15 and 16. And when you get to those verses, it says, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and then notice what it says about Jesus. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Luke isn't the only gospel that makes it clear that Jesus was born solely of the Holy Spirit to the Virgin Mary. Matthew's gospel does that as well. And Matthew is very clear in this genealogy that Jacob was not the father of, or was the father of Joseph, who was then not the father of Jesus, but who was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ or the Messiah. Now, if you turn back to Luke, Luke chapter 3, to the genealogy there, you'll find, beginning in verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Notice that unlike uh, Matthew's genealogy, Luke's genealogy does not move from past to present, it moves from present to the past. Luke reverses that order. But Luke, just like Matthew, makes it clear that Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. Luke says, being the son as was supposed of Joseph. Both Matthew's gospel and Luke's, again, make it abundantly clear, not only in these genealogies, but even prior to that, in the way that the birth is announced. Matthew's gospel has the same announcement made to Joseph. Your wife is pregnant through the Holy Spirit, so don't put her away. Now, there is no difference between them in that regard. But there is a huge difference between them. We can see it emerge even in verse 23. Now, there are no differences in these genealogies from Abraham to David. When you run through the genealogies, I mean, there are slight spelling differences for names. It's the same people. From Abraham to David, there's no difference. Same line, same genealogy. But from David to Jesus, they are completely different. Notice that David's son is different. If you look at verse 21 or 31 in Luke's account, you'll see that the son of David is Nathan, David's third son from Solomon. David and Bathsheba, or from from, uh, Bathsheba. David and Bathsheba had one son who died in infancy. The second son was Solomon, and the third son was Nathan. Luke, Luke's genealogy goes from David to Nathan. Solomon, or uh, Matthew's genealogy, if you go back and look at Matthew chapter 1, it runs from David through Solomon. David's second son and the king. Notice too, Joseph's father is different. Matthew's genealogy names 
Joseph's father as Jacob, but Luke's genealogy in verse 23 names his father as Heli. And if you trace through the names in between Joseph and David, these names are completely different except for two names, Shealtiel and Zerubbabel. Two names in both genealogies are the same, otherwise they're different. Shealtiel was the son of Jehoiachin. And Jehoiachin was the king of Judah who was the last king before Judah was dismantled and exile to Babylon happened. And it was his grandson, Zerubbabel, who returned from the exile in the first year of Cyrus and who laid the foundation for the second temple when they were back in the land of Judah, when they were returned. If you were here during our Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll remember that name during that series. Now, why are these genealogies so different? Well, there have been a number of solutions that have been proposed Uh, But there are two, I think, that really make, to me, the most sense. They're the two that are probably the most popular. The first solution to the difference in this genealogy, and it's the most widely accepted today among scholars, is that Matthew's genealogy, the one that runs through Solomon, Matthew's genealogy traces the legal line, or you might call it the royal line of succession, culminating in Joseph. I mean, if you just read through Matthew's genealogy, it is full of kings. Every name in there is another king, is another king, is another king. I mean, it's one king after another after another. The last king to be named is Jehoiachin. That's the last king, and that's when the kings cease. That's when the exile happens. Israel never had another king. They never had another king. After the exile, they came back and they had governors. They rebuilt the temple. The temple never had the glory of God uh, in it again. And from that point on, they were essentially uh, overshadowed and ruled by a succession of larger and more powerful uh, nations. And so Israel, by the time of Jesus, is longing for another king. We want a king that can trample Rome, kick them out, and establish the Davidic dynasty again. Now, if Matthew is giving the legal or royal line, the reason why this legal or royal line could culminate in Joseph, according to New Testament scholar J. Gresham Machen, he says, when a kingly line becomes extinct, which again it did, the living member of a collateral line inherits the throne. So it may well have been in the present case. And so if Matthew is giving the legal or the royal line, then what's Luke giving? Luke is giving the biological line. The biological line. Luke's genealogy essentially contains no kings after David. There are no kings, but but it contains all the names that are essential up to David. The Messiah, again, had to be a son of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David. And since Nathan was a son of David, then the biological line fulfills the credentials as well. 
So that's the one solution. There's a second that is older and not as well accepted today. And that is that Matthew's genealogy is Joseph's genealogy and Luke's genealogy is Mary's genealogy. Now there are some pretty neat reasons why this may well be the case. For one, Matthew's gospel, you just read through it, it tends to focus on Joseph. Uh, Joseph is the one talked about in the infancy narrative. Joseph is the one talked about in the, uh, in the, in the message from the angel. Luke's gospel, as we've seen, very much focuses on Mary and Mary's side of things. It's also interesting because grammatically, it's possible. It's possible to not have verse 23 read the way we have it. We have it here in our text. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Eli. You can grammatically construct this to have the parentheses essentially include of Joseph. If you follow what I'm saying, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, comma, the son of Heli. In other words, what Luke could be saying is that Mary is the son of Heli, or the daughter of Heli. Mary is the descendant of Heli, and Jesus, therefore, is the grandson of Heli. It would be Luke's way of inserting Mary into a genealogy where women were normally never inserted. It would be his way of doing it. It's also possible, biblically speaking, to say that Joseph is the son of Heli by marriage to Mary, if Mary had no brothers. Numbers 27 says, you will speak thus to the people of Israel, saying, if a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. So in other words, if that's the case, if Mary had no brothers, then Mary was Heli's daughter, had no brothers, and thus became Heli's heiress, and Joseph became his son and inherited everything. Either way, no matter which way you interpret the differences, Jesus has the legal standing to be the Messiah. One scholar says this, there is no inconsistency in Luke's mind between the account of the virgin birth and the naming of Joseph as one of the parents because from the legal point of view, Joseph was the father of Jesus. You see, it is the fact of the incarnation. This is what makes the incarnation so incredible. It is the fact of the incarnation that Joseph was Jesus' legal father, but not his biological father, that I think seals the deal. Because if you read the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 22 says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, speaking of that final king, the one that was exiled to Babylon, God says this, with the burial of a donkey, he shall be buried. He will be dragged and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. You will be ashamed and confounded because of all of your evil. And as I live, declares the Lord, 
None of Jehoiakim's offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. God brought a curse down on King Jehoiakim. He said, none of your biological descendants will ever sit on the throne. God ended the line there with Jehoiakim. God cursed it. He said none of his physical descendants would ever sit on the throne of David. But right after that, in Jeremiah 23, immediately after he says that none of the king's descendants will ever sit on the throne, Jeremiah, God, through Jeremiah, says, Behold, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king. He will execute justice and righteousness in the land, and the name by which he will be called is the Lord is our righteousness. So in other words, there is no king that will physically descend from Jehoiakim who can ever sit on the throne of David, but immediately after that, God says through Jeremiah that there will be a king one day. He will be a son of David, and his name will be the Lord is righteous. How can this be? Through the incarnation. James Montgomery Boyce says this. If Jesus had been the son of Joseph, he would have been accursed and could have never been the Messiah. The line that had a curse on it produced Joseph and exhausts the line of Solomon. For Joseph's other children now have an elder brother who legally by adoption is the royal heir. When God the Holy Spirit begot the Lord Jesus in the womb of the virgin, without any use of a human father, the child that was born the seed of David according to the flesh, and when Joseph married Mary and took the unborn child under his protecting care, giving him the title that had come down to him through his ancestor Solomon, the Lord Jesus became the legal Messiah, the royal Messiah, the uncursed Messiah, the true Messiah, and the only possible Messiah. Genesis 3.15, God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The Satan crusher, in other words, would come from the seed of the woman. That's what was said from the beginning. And it's even more amazing than that because here's where Luke's genealogy is pointing to something more than Matthew's. Both show that Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David, legally the Messiah. But it has been Luke's burden from the beginning to show that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but the Son of God. That's what Luke has been hammering us with, that Jesus is the Son of God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And when Jesus was 12 years old, he looked at his parents and said, don't you know that I have to be in my father's house? He knew from the beginning that he was the Son of God. 
the descendant of David who would reign forever. Unlike Matthew, Luke places his genealogy here because it is in between God the Father calling him my beloved son and Satan raising the question, are you the son of God? And right in between those two, Luke traces Jesus' genealogy all the way to God. He doesn't stop at Abraham. Luke has been laboring to show that Jesus is the Son of God, and his genealogy goes past Abraham all the way to Adam, the Son of God. And that means that in all of human history, there have only been two human beings who are unique in that way, that you could call them the Son of God. Adam, who was created a man, and Jesus who was born of a woman, born solely of the Spirit, without a human father. In all of human history, there is the first Adam and the second Adam. Jesus came to be not only the Messiah, but the second Adam. And as we heard earlier in the service, for as by a man came death, so also from a man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The reason that we tend to skip through genealogies is because we find them full of people that are inconsequential. We, we, we skip over them because we don't know who these people are. And the neat thing about these genealogies is that God remembered them. We skip over them because we consider them nobodies, but in God's eyes, every human being is an eternal soul that is created. And Scripture says, that all of humanity, every single person, is in the end going to be represented by one of two men. They're either going to be represented by Adam or by the second Adam, by Adam or Christ. We are either in Adam and we die, or we are in Christ and we live. Adam was a son of God. He was created to represent him, to image him, and to reflect him, and he fell from that. And so Jesus came to be the son that Adam failed to be. And Christian, that is what is special about Luke's genealogy. Because it tells us that if we are in Christ, then not only are we in a line of the Messiah, but you and I, Christian, will one day rise to be sons of God ourselves. Co-heirs with this son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this promise. So grateful, Lord, that you kept your promise, that you kept the promises that you made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David, that Jesus fulfills them all, that in him not only do we see the, the Messiah, but we see the second Adam. Father, we pray that you would encourage us today. If we are in Christ, then we will rise and reign with him. It's in his name we pray, amen.